for four. Tonight we're going to be in Ruth chapter four. The last time we were in Ruth, we finished chapter three where Ruth is instructed by her mother-in-law Naomi in the courting and the redemptive process. And we see all throughout this book that Boaz, the kinsman redeemer in the Hebrew, the Goal, is a type of Christ. And today we're going to see the last chapter in Ruth, the happily ever after ending, and what it means to us many thousands of years later. So, starting with verse 1. It says, Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the near kinsman of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Come aside, friend, sit down here. So he came aside and sat down. Where we left off was that Naomi taught Ruth the courting process, and she, uh, when, he, when Boaz falls asleep by the grain, uh, she lifts up the bottom of his robe, the garment, just to, uh, to put herself by, by his feet, right? And then he woke up to find her by his feet, and we understand as we went through the book, the courting process and the redemptive process kind of all wrapped up in one in this particular situation. Uh, so Boaz knew what that meant, and uh, Ruth knew what that meant, and Boaz said, I'd love to marry you, uh, but there is a kinsman redeemer that's closer than I am. Right? So we talked about buying her husband and the father's land back, keeping it in the family, but also marrying the widow. So uh, Boaz says, here's the problem. Um, there is somebody closer that can do this. So I have to give him the first right of refusal, so to speak. And we recapped Jewish law that allowed the foreclosed property of the deceased to stay in that particular family, as well as, again, marrying the widow who had no children, and to marry her, to have children, and keep on that, um, the deceased uh, person's name, so that kinsman redeemer. Now, this is kind of funny because, you know, the Hebrew is translated to the English, but you know, thousands of years later, the same type of um, expressions and humor you can still get out of the scripture. I could just see Boaz just chomping at the bit. And he sees the, near, the nearer kinsman. He says, hey, hey, buddy, buddy, come over here, come over here. Have a seat. We got to talk. He didn't waste any time here. And he did it in the city gate. If you know your culture, uh, the city gate was similar to our municipal building, right? So we're in Jamesburg, and down there, a few blocks down, is the police station and the municipal building, and kind of everything happens there. Well, their city gate was similar to our municipal complex. It was the seat of government, but also the seat of commerce and business. Verse 2, and he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So again, Boaz doesn't waste any time. He wants to make sure everything is done legally and with witnesses, and that was big back then. Witnesses were big in Jewish jurisprudence, and we even see that in the Old Testament law. And Boaz wasn't going to risk any legal challenges later on. Verse 3, then he said to the near kinsman, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold a piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know. For there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. And he said, I will redeem it. 
So Boaz offers this uh, deal to the nearer kinsman. We don't know his name, uh, but he, for whatever reason, he doesn't first mention the widow involved. So here's the good news. You can buy back the land, keep it in the family. The next of kin says, sounds good, I'll do it. Read on. Verse 5, then Boaz says, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth, the, the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead on his inheritance. And the near kinsman says, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So Boaz presents the rest of the deal to this man. The fact also that the widow is a Moabitess. Now, it's funny how people judge on the surface. I could just picture, you know, a little Yiddish here. The guy saying, oi vey, you didn't tell me that a shiksa comes with the deal. <laughs> so those of you who know little Yiddish understand, a shiksa was a, a, a Gentile woman. You know, wait, 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 wait. What, did you just say a widow? Did you say she was a Moabitess? Maybe I don't want to buy this land. On second thought, the property doesn't look so good anymore because they went together. So the, the nearer kinsman, um, if he had children, he would have to father children with this woman, the wife of the deceased, the widow, to carry on that family name. Now, doing that, if he had children, would all of a sudden put the younger kids now in the, in the, in the dividing up of the inheritance, and his kids would get less. So, of course, you can only infer that he probably had kids or wanted to have kids, and now this was going to be a, a competing issue, and he didn't want to jeopardize that. So, verse 7. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm anything, one man took off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was an attestation in Israel. Therefore, the near kinsman said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal. And Boaz said to the elders and to all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilean's and Malon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to raise up the name of the dead on his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from the gate of his place. You are witnesses this day. So to play it safe and legal, um, the nearer kinsman passes off his sandal to Boaz, and the person who had the right to the land, if he was going to give it up, would take off his sandal claiming that he was giving it up. In other words, he gave it to the other man, right, Boaz, to basically say, here's my sandal. I had the right to walk on this land. Now my sandal is yours. Now you have the right to walk on this land. So it sounds kind of odd to us, but it's no different than a handshake agreement back in the old days or now with the attorneys, some type of legal contract that would um, you know, come together here. So Boaz and Ruth now get the land back and can carry on the family name of Elimelech. Verse 11. And all the people were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah the two who built the house of Israel, and may you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. 
Now let's look at the significance of what the townspeople are saying, right? And again, look at Jewish culture, look at uh, their understanding of the Old Testament, of the law, of the, of the Genesis account, right? Uh, they're rejoicing. In verse 11, they say, they speak about Rachel and Leah, um, were Jacob or Israel's two, two of the wives, right? And they together gave birth to much of the nation of Israel. So Leah actually was um, uh, Jacob's first wife, right? She bore Judah, and whose bloodline Boaz was, as well as Jesus many years later, the line of the tribe of Judah, right? And they said, may you prosper and be famous in Bethlehem Ephrathah. Now, understand there were two Bethlehems, and we see that in Micah 5, right? It's very specific where the Messiah would be born because the other Bethlehem was further up. I think it was northwest. Uh, and so that was important because the, the lower Bethlehem, where actually Jesus was born, had m much fewer inhabitants. So if you're going to make a prophecy and you're really going to narrow it down so that you can, when the Messiah is born, right, uh, you, you can say, wow, that was really of God, um, you're going to pick the one with the less inhabitants. It's just the way it was. So this was celebratory and prophetic as the Messiah would be born there. Now, Bethlehem, many of us know, is, means house of bread. And Ephrathah also means fruitful. So again, this was celebratory, but also prophetic. And verse 12, Perez was the son of Judah by Tamar. And we can see this in the genealogy table in Matthew's gospel. But what's common and this is a celebration, but what's common is that both of these situations, whether it was um, Tamar and Judah having Perez or uh, Leah uh, giving birth to Judah, they were both surrounded by sorrow. If you know your Genesis, if you know your Old Testament. The first situation, Jacob didn't love his wife Leah. He wanted Rachel, but, his, um, but Laban tricked Jacob and on the night they were getting married, um, he put his older daughter, Leah, behind the veil. And the marriage was consummated, and he woke up the next morning and realized it wasn't the one that he worked seven years to get, right? Uh, so that, that was pretty sorrowful on Leah's part because she knew, I'm sure, that Jacob loved, really, Rachel. And the second part of this is that neither of Judah's sons, Ur and Onan, if you go deep into the Old Testament, wanted to give Tamar children, right? So that was surrounded by sorrow. So she ends up tricking, her, her, uh, tr tricking Judah into giving her children. But God took both situations and he bore fruit from them because that's what God does, right? As both women had Jesus descend from them. And I would just say this, God can take any hopeless situation and breathe life into it. Whatever your situation is, I can't read behind your frontal lobe. You know, everybody's got a story. Everybody's got an issue. Everybody has something that's causing them some, some sort of sorrow or um, difficulty. But if you look at what God did in the Bible, he took the worst situations and he made beautiful things prosper. He made them fruitful. So I would just say to you and, you know, thousands of years later, that whatever your situation is, God can breathe life into it, right? Am I right? Does anybody agree with me here? All right. My Baptist section, want to give me a few amens? That'd be great. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. 
Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a near kinsman, and may his name be famous in Israel, and may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom, and she became a nurse to him. Also the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez got Hezron, Hezron begot Ram, and Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon with Rahab uh, begot Boaz, Boaz with Ruth, I'm adding that, begot Obed. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. So Obed is born, and when he grows up, he later becomes the father of Jesse, and Jesse fathers King David. Look at that. Pretty neat stuff. And what we really see here is not an ending, but a new beginning. And God is filled with uh, these ideas or these concepts of new beginnings. So this is a story of redemption as well as new beginnings. And it's a time for rejoicing. And in our lives, you know, there are times for rejoicing. And there are also times for new beginnings. Look at what happened here geographically. It's pretty neat. And all the suffering and sorrow and grief that these people endured was not in vain including Naomi's life, who she said, don't call me Naomi anymore. Remember way back in chapter, was it one or two? Call me bitter, you know, because my life is, is bitter. The Lord has dealt bitterly with me. Now look at her life. It's completely changed. And we see that suffering is, is not always a bad thing. And, and actually, incidentally, when we cover 2 Corinthians 12 on Sunday, we're also going to talk a little bit about that because it's, it's appropriate. But Jesus suffered so that we could have everlasting life. And it was an honor to him to die on that cross to give us that everlasting life. And we suffer. And the Bible tells us that it produces patience, produces maturity, compassion, and it's a character builder. And we also are honored when we're persecuted for the Lord's sake because, you know, it's an honor to follow in his footsteps. And we see also that in Salmon marrying Rahab, according to Matthew uh, 1, she was a Gentile prostitute. Right? So it's amazing how God takes the weak things of the world and in, his, in our weaknesses, he shows himself strong. He took in, in the Messiah's bloodline some things that the people would have really turned their nose up at and he um, had the Messiah come from that bloodline. So again, if he can do these things with these frail people, imagine what he can do in our lives. And I would say this too, that again, a Gentile prostitute was in the bloodline of Jesus the Messiah. Now, in our society, um, I think a lot of people suffer, maybe even quietly, from problems with self-esteem. And they, I think sometimes believers sin because they don't feel like they have much worth. And I would just say that, again, looking what God can do, um, no matter how low we think of ourselves or at what times we may feel down on ourselves, God looks at us as beautiful. And God sent his son into the world to die for us, not only corporately, but individually. So uh, just keep that in mind next time you want to put yourself down. You know? A few types in, in the, you know, we always see these types, and that really is something that we see in the Old Testament, that God perfects 
or points to an event maybe much later in the New Testament. So types, number one, next of kin. Well, Jesus became a man. He became a man, fully God and fully man. He came into our human bloodline so he could become our next of kin so he could redeem us by dying on the cross. And two, redemption, the redemption price. Elimelech's property was in the process of being sold to a stranger because he couldn't pay for it. But Boaz ends up redeeming it. By the same token, sin sold us as people into slavery. Who can stand here before God and convince him on their own merits that we should get into God's heaven? None of us, right? That's what sin's done. It sold us into slavery and ultimately hell. And we couldn't get out. The price was far more than we could pay. There was nothing we could do to achieve uh, perfection so that we could stand in God's presence. But like Boaz, Jesus, Jesus' blood was the most costly, was the mo- is the most costly thing ever in eternity. And it was his blood that paid the ransom price for us to redeem us from the, the, the course that we were getting into. So I would just end with this. Um, <clears throat> we see a story. Nice Jewish town, Jewish culture. Um, some really neat things in the Old Testament. But what we also see is it was a type of the Messiah to come. And I'm sure that the people didn't realize all that the Messiah would bring. And I think I would just end on the, on the gospel note. Jesus died for our sins. He didn't have to come down from heaven to earth. He could have just, they could have just wiped us out and started all over again. But God loved the world so much that he sent his only begotten son into the world that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through Jesus, the world might be saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord.